Hello and welcome to The Ballot Box, a new podcast focusing on elections all around the world. Each month we're going to be looking at two or three of the most significant elections that have taken place that month, um, as well as reviewing some of the others in a little bit less detail. So October and November of 2020 have been especially uh, packed with elections. Um, obviously, there is um, the big presidential contest in the United States. Um, we're not going to cover that in a lot of detail this week, but we are going to um, go over quite a lot of the um, the other elections that have taken place around the world. And then next week, we're going to be talking about um, Puerto Rico, uh, the elections in Georgia, the country, not the state, and also in the Republic of Moldova, which has held presidential elections this month. Before we get started, though, I think it's best um, we all introduce ourselves as the uh, regular podcasting team. Um, so why don't you uh, kick us off, Chris, by telling us a bit about yourself um, and your area's expertise. My name is Chris Terry. I am currently studying at the University of Manchester on a PhD on um, voters in marginal seats. Uh, my expertise is uh, comparative politics, um, electoral systems in particular, um, and uh, to some extent, um, political parties. And, and, and voting, I should say. But. <laughs> I, I'm particularly knowledgeable about, um, about European politics. Um, and um, especially Romania, because my partner is from Romania, and so I've become something of a, of a Romania file. Um, I'm um, also um, little knowledgeable about uh, about most democracies in the world, um, to the point where people. I used to have a colleague who had a game where she would name a country and see if, how much I could tell her about his politics. <laughs> um, I used to work for the Electoral Reform Society, a kind of British campaigning organization which works on um, which works on democratic reform issues in the United Kingdom. Um, and I've also worked in Brussels um, for a public affairs company there. Um, gathering data on um, on European um, political stuff, so um, I've a wide array of very nerdy interests. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, I'm Jonathan Parker. Um, so I do my uh, my PhD as well at the University of Sussex, um, where I'm uh, researching about. Um, sub-national uh, regional level party systems and um, I especially look at like regionalist parties a lot um party systems more generally um I suppose I'm quite Europe focused although like Chris I try to know a little bit about everywhere um but probably Spain is my um uh area of expertise um see know the UK quite a lot because I'm I'm from here um there's yeah in the general general um have a general but not expert interest in a few European countries that I've randomly decided that I like quite a lot. So Greek politics, I'm quite into. Um, I sort of moderate like German politics as well um, and Irish politics, I suppose. Um, I would say with the, with the three in Europe that um, I try to keep an eye on the most. Um, yeah, I don't have any, um, I'm probably still, um, I would say quite a bit younger than the two of you. So I've not had any kind of extensive working experience in, um, various political organizations. Awesome. Me, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Andres Veseren. 
I am a PhD student in the Department of Political Science at the City University of New York. I was born and raised in Mexico, and I worked for a very long time for the Mexican uh, Federal Insti uh, Electoral Institute that then became the uh, National Electoral Institute. And I was basically in charge of analyzing law and policy for different areas of elections in Mexico, things from uh, drawing up districts to voter registration to campaign finance law. And um, I guess uh, I lived four elections in Mexico <laughs> and I lived according to the electoral cycle in Mexico for a very long time until ironically enough, I started um, going back to academia <laughs> where I could take a break from elections and focus on other uh, sort of other sort of topics. Um, but basically I'm doing stuff on like democratic theory more broadly construed and immigrants, both in the United States and in Latin America. So in Colombia and in in the northeast of the United States. Um, I've also I've also curiously enough been uh, an electoral observer. I went as part of the Mexican delegation to Barack Obama's re-election, uh, which was really interesting. Um, it's usually uh, yeah, and um, and yeah, I guess my regional focus is Latin America. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. I've, I've traveled a lot and I've also studied like some of the electoral systems there. Yeah, I should also mention that I've been an election, uh, I have been an election observer in Ukraine and in Armenia. So I also have some election observation uh, experience. We should probably also mention where we all met as well. We, we all met at the University College London um, where we did a master's together with the wonderful Cheryl Schornstein um, on um, comparative politics and democracy. So now we should probably get around to talking about some elections. Um, I think the first ones we should turn to, probably the two that have taken place in the Caribbean region this month. Um, so that's uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines and Belize. Um, so it was St. Vincent and the Grenadines, um, where the um, incumbent um, left-wing uh, Unity Labour Party uh, won a fifth uh, consecutive election, um, defeating the centre-right New Democratic Party. Um, the parliament is only uh, 15 seats, and they won uh, nine of them, um, giving them an overall majority allowing mm. them to stay in power. Um, yeah, and then there was Belize as well, um, with, where... Uh, there was a change of government um, here uh, for the first time since uh, 2003. Um, People's United Party um, won um, majority in Parliament. Um, I found this was a somewhat difficult party to characterise um, ideologically. Um, so this was somewhat Christian democratic, but a fairly leftist one, kind of economically, um, but at the same time somewhat socially conservative. Um, but yeah, this is now the uh, governing party defeated the uh, centre-right uh, United Democratic Party. Um, and then, yeah, there was the, there was elections in, um, in Myanmar, Burma, um, this month as well, on the 8th of November. So, obviously, for many years, Myanmar has been, was governed by a, by a military dictatorship of, of various um, 
of, of with essentially two main phases of the hunter being in, in control um, and it, quite different hunters. Um, and it, but it kind of became a kind of cause celeb in the West because of um, Aung San Suu Kyi and her um, National League for Democracy. Um, there was a kind of very strong sense that the people of, of Burma, I, I tend to refer to it as Burma because um, essentially Burma is quite ethnically diverse and both, both in, in the in the tongue of the majority ethnicity, um, Burma and Myanmar basically both mean the country, the country of Burma. But um, Burma is considered to be the term that refers to the country more in a sense that introduces the ethnic minorities more um, because um, they also refer to it essentially as Burma. and the military government changed it to Myanmar essentially as a kind of ethnocentric move. Yeah. Myanmar or Burma has changed its system in recent years to introduce some democracy, but not a a total amount, uh, uh, not a not not a true democracy. So twenty five percent of the seats in parliament are just reserved the military. Just straight off. So mm-hmm. that's like the most obvious thing. Um, and also certain cabinet seats are are withheld for the military as well, including the defense military most ministry, most obviously. Um, but despite that, the National League for Democracy has managed to win elections. Uh, um Aung San Suu Kyi isn't actually isn't actually able to become president. Um, essentially because the military made it in the new constitution so that um, so that someone who had a part had a relation who was of non-Burmese citizenship couldn't become president of Burma and her late husband was of British citizenship um and she um so that blocks her constitutionally from becoming president however they have created a the nld ha, go, um, government has managed to create a position for her which is essentially equivalent to prime minister so she's she's essentially um in, 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 in the most powerful person in the country she has become uh, controversial in recent years because of the Burmese government's ethnic cleansing of the Rohingya. I'm going to be honest, I'm not quite clear on how involved she is directly in that or how much it is that the, the military institutions are, are basically forcing, are basically going about it without her direct blessing. However, she has been very vocally, essentially supportive of it in terms of her external statements, mm-hmm. whether that's because she believes that if she uh, speaks against the ethnic cleansing, she will be removed from power, or whether it's because she's genuinely supportive, I don't know, uh, and I'm not at all clear on. And I've I've read stuff on both sides, which kind of hints both ways Mm -hmm. um to some extent i don't think it particularly matters 
like supporting ethnic cleansing in in any situation is obviously not a good thing um but it, it it's a kind of cause of severe external criticism and quite rightly too yeah. um uh, the nld has increased its majority um it's basically the only party in contention amongst the kind of large uh, the largest ethnic group in burma um there's another party called the usdp which is essentially the military's party which does very well and the nld actually increased its seats by a little bit um i i um and some of the and there's a few ethnic minority parties which also um won more seats um and including a couple that gained entry for the first time but um they're not none of them are associated with the Rohingya. so that that also is going to i suspect create problems in the long run that um and in, in fact um some elections in the um Rohingya territories were cancelled because there is a, a counterinsurgency amongst the Rohingya um, which to some extent predates the ethnic cleansing and is one of the reasons why the, the government argues for continuing it. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, obviously ethnic cleansing is wrong regardless. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, it's a difficult situation. It's not a democratic country, but it's got kind of, it, it's much more democratic than it was, but there's this kind of, Pro continued problem with the conflict with the Rohingya um, in, in Burma, which is going to carry on, I suspect. Um, I don't think that this election, although it's a victory for the NLD, is going to change the political balance ultimately between the, the military and the kind of pseudo-democratic functions. Um, headed up by um, Aung San, um, sadly. Um, so they've kind of, they've been left with this kind of quasi-democracy that um, is, is still in many ways controlled by the military. There was, there was also, I mean, I don't know if you guys want to talk about it, but there was also the Chilean plebiscite Yes, yes, I was so happy about that. I got out my DVD of No and watched it again. <laughs> it, was, it was a huge deal. Yes. It was a huge deal. Did, yeah. did, I, I presume you, you probably know something about that. Do you want to talk about that, Andreas? I can also insert myself, probably, if I want to. <laughs> you probably know more than I do. So basically, um, there was a series of social movements in Chile associated to, I mean, there were pocketbook issues and it's, it all started out with a hike in subway fares in Santiago. Chile is like economically incredibly successful compared to the rest of Latin America. And in fact, compared to like the world in general, I guess, they've had yeah. pretty much sustained economic growth on the backs of like Chinese developments, partially because they're very good at um, managing the vast natural resources that they have, mostly copper, um, but others like fishing, and they've diversified their economy, etc. 
Um, but there's a huge sense of malaise because inequality is rampant in Chile. And private companies have much more, I mean, a lot of, uh, a lot of services that in other countries would not be run by private companies are in Chile, essentially water right? Water is, is privatized in Chile. And the constitution that was approved under, that was approved under the dictatorship of Pinochet in 1980 um, inscribes into the constitution protections for private companies. So anyway, a, a protest that started out as a pocketbook issue, but is also related to student protests for um, uh, basically um, state-sponsored tuition, which um, no, there's no such thing as like tuition for university in Chile, even even for ostensibly like or what is called public universities. They got it, it, it merged and it just snowballed. And especially Santiago was the site of some extremely heated, um, prolonged uh, demonstrations that then saw a lot of police repression. And as police repressed demonstrators quite brutally, um, protests grew and grew and grew and grew. And here's one of the interesting parts of this story, which is it's not quite clear where the idea of a new constitution came from. Like it's not, there was no list of demands that was formulated from the beginning by the protesters. But once this idea once there was the germ of this idea, it took on very quickly. Yeah, it has been something that's been discussed for quite some time in Chile, from what I understand. Um, <laughs> so, for um, so uh, for instance, the presidential candidate who came third in uh, a couple of elections ago um, was essentially running on a platform of a new constitution and, and told his supporters in the second round I don't think he actively endorsed this, but he said that he personally was going to cast a blank ballot on which he was going to write um, a new constitution or something like that. <laughs> um, so the, the idea has been there, particularly in leftist circles, because as you say, the, the constitution is written as a straitjacket to basically prevent change from the economic policies of the Pinochet area, which were very famously a kind of model for the Chicago boys and Milton Friedman did a lot of revising of the of the of the hunter um, and um, after the referendum in 1988 which essentially brought back democracy but a kind of straitjacketed democracy through through the Chilean constitution Chile actually ended up with the longest run of center-left governments in the world <laughs> um, they had 30 years of of essentially centre-left presidents <laughs> that couldn't change anything <laughs> because the because of the constitution, also because of the electoral system, because they had the dumbest electoral system in the world. Um, they had something called the binomial system, which yeah. was um, so basically Chile was divided into a series of two-member constituencies, and which were elected through um, through the, the Hunt system which essentially meant that you ended up with parties banging up into coalitions together. And there was a kind of big centre-left coalition, a big centre-right coalition. 
And then what would essentially happen is that the party that um, won the largest amounts of votes in each constituency would get the first seat, and then the, the coalition that won the second largest number of seats uh, votes would get the second seat. Um, and the only way way that could really change was if one of the parties doubled the other. Um, mm. So you had to get twice as many votes in order to get both the constituency, both the seats in the constituency. So that basically meant that Congress was continually close enough to deadlocks <laughs> that you couldn't really pass much in the way of legislation. Um, so yeah, that was reformed before the last election, though, right? It was. It was changed to an open list system, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why, actually, the, the it, it talk of a referendum became possible and changing the constitution became possible. It took them a very long time to get to the point where they could change the electoral system, even. Um, and I think technically the constitution says that you're not allowed to write a new constitution, but obviously they decided to go over the top of that quite rightly. Because, <laughs> or, or I don't know whether they've managed to amend that out somehow. Um, but I, I, I believe, I'm pretty sure that for a very long time it said that you couldn't write a new constitution. <laughs> Just a delightful... <laughs> That's really interesting. It's fascinating. Um, and obviously in the middle of this, there was uh, the COVID pandemic, right? So mm. the, the, date for, the date for the plebiscite was pushed back. So the plebiscite was in a sense, um, I think it was, so yes. It, so there, there, okay, so it, it's, it's there to, to have some sort of outlet for massive demonstrations. But in a sense, it's also a kind of, it's a way out for, for the incumbent party, Piñera, Piñera's party, to actually do something that will somehow uh, create more national unity. It's extremely divided at the moment. Um, so it's kind of, it, it, that, in that sense, it's interesting. And, and so on and 25th of October, people got to vote. After it was postponed due to COVID, I don't know how many months, they got to vote. Um, there was a, it was a two-ballot plebiscite. So the first ballot said, do you want a new constitution? Yes or no. And then the second ballot said, what sort of organ or what sort of, yeah, what sort of organ should write the new constitution? So should this be a, a mixed uh, uh a mixed constitutional convention or just a constitutional convention. And the mixed constitutional convention would be in, would be formed by um, like popularly, popularly elected um, representatives, but then the parliament would, or, or Congress people at the moment could also either become uh, part of the people of the Constitutional Convention, or they would get to choose um, representatives to the Constitutional Convention. While the the normal Constitutional Convention that people could vote for would be would be made up only of popularly elected members. So this second, so I mean, the 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 mixed Constitutional Convention lost. So people voted overwhelmingly for a new constitution. And it's really fascinating to see how there's a class divide and how much wealthier neighborhoods of Santiago and other cities 
voted against a new constitution and mostly like you know middle class and working class people voted for mostly uh, a new constitution there's also a geographical divide and then the and, and it's interesting to see that people rejected the mixed the mixed convention uh, constitutional convention which was seen in a sense as a way for kind of the current government to have some say in or the yeah current like current parties to have a say in the constitution because they mm. would get to they would get like as many members as the public elected right yeah so in a sense the fact that this option lost and that people have voted overwhelmingly for like a purely elected constitutional convention is a is a rejection of current parties and there's very much you know and this is the thing this is the case in most of latin america and probably a lot of uh democratic countries parties are incredibly delegitimized um mm. it's not like it's sort of the material basis of parties like uh you know the corporatism that used to be the norm in, in latin america is all but gone basically and so parties are scrambled to get you know they don't really have like a secure material basis it could also be um basically kind of the politics of scandal that have rocked almost all of Latin America you know Odebrecht being probably like the latest and the most deadly for parties but basically they're totally delegitimized so people have voted for a new constitution and to elect members from scratch now parties will probably find a way to be incredibly influential in that second election yeah. so on I mean, April 20 sorry in April 2021 people will vote for the constitutional convention once more yeah, yeah. there's a presidential election next year as well am i right in thinking um, oh, i think there's one coming up but i've i've actually seen some um, recent polling from Chile for the next presidential election. I think it's far enough away that it's not quite clear who the candidates are going to be yet, but I didn't think it was quite significant that the, the last poll I saw, the two people leading were from the far left. They were, they, they were, on, they were on quite small portions of the vote, and I think there was a lot of don't knows in the polls, and et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, the I think the person in first was um, um, was from the Communist Party, mm. and the um, the person in second in the last poll I saw was um, Pamela Gilles, who is um, from the Humanist Party, which actually is arguably to the left of the Communist Party. Is <laughs> 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 uh, considered to be in some ways more radical. Um, in part because it's newer, the Communist Party is like it's like one of those things. That the Communist Party is in some ways more of an old guard party now <laughs> because it's been around so long. <laughs> um, yeah, I did mention yeah. that they don't allow um, for consecutive uh, re-election as well. Chile, that's right. Yes, well, Pinera has been a president before. Yes, um, but he but they can't. So. Yes, and in fact, in fact, they've had kind of musical chairs for like the last four terms because it went Bachelet, Pinera, 
uh, uh, um, Panera. <laughs> um, um, so it's kind of an interesting. That's also a, that's that may as well have also caused it. And and Pinot is kind of interesting as well because he's basically the only centre right president that Chile has elected since um, since the um, since the changing the constitution in 1988. But he's also from, so there's essentially two big parties on the right in Chile. And as I understand it, he's from the one that's less connected to the Pinochet um, legacy, albeit in coalition with the other one. Um, so he's considered to be from the kind of more liberal part, uh, liberal part of the, the Chilean right, as it were. But... Um, it, but um, and as I understand it, his party was divided on the constitution, and the other party was very much against changing it, um, which makes sense. Um, but in a way, I kind of wonder if it almost kind of required a centre right president in that situation to be able to legitimise the idea of having a new constitution at all, because um, I think if the you know the socialists are like when Bachelet's last term, she also promised a new constitution and got nowhere mm. because of course the uh, because it had become quite a popular idea on the left, particularly amongst the radical left. But um, and and as I said, the person that came third had campaigned for it very strongly, um, but. Um, yeah, just the right, I think, were too big a block in Congress to be able to get it through. Um, but obviously that changes when you've got a centre-right president. You can, you know, if, the, if the left kind of remains as a block in the support of changing the constitution, which I think they were, um, for very good reasons. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating election. Also, very well run, like the Electoral Services of Chile, which is the the mm. Electoral Commission, did a great job. Um, like um, a st initial study, given the the pandemic, is like relevant. Um, an initial study suggested that the average wait time for voting was fourteen minutes, which is nothing. Which is really quick, especially given that there were that they had to be like people had to be spaced out within like, indoors. And given yeah. that there's tensions around it as well, like I mean, I don't know if they were afraid of violence on the day, but like, yeah, given the yeah. protest movements that have been associated with it, and given yeah. the kind of specific anger on both the left and the right that goes around constitutional politics in Chile, yeah. Um, but actually, now that we now that we're talking about this, I just remembered there was something really wild about the, the the election, which is that the emergency health measures against COVID forbade anyone with COVID who tested positive for COVID from voting. So you'd think like that's a, I mean that's a rule that's basically impossible to apply, right? That's what you would think. But in Chile, every COVID test. You get tested twice, and one of the tests goes to a government-run laboratory, and it's associated to your ID. So there's a list 
on, in the health ministry of who tested positive for COVID. And on the day of the elections, their, um, their carabineros, which is like a carabineros, it's like the carabinieri in, in Italy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, it's like a civil, it's like a, sorry, it's a military, it's a military police. Mm -hmm. So it's not the army, it's not the police. It's something in between. Yeah, the, Romania has something similar that they call the um, gendarmes. Yeah, yeah right, right, like the gendarmerie in France. Yeah, and so they would, they they showed some members of the of the carabineros showed up to polling stations with lists of people who were eligible to vote on that polling station who had tested positive for COVID, and they could ask people for their IDs, <laughs> and if they were. And if, if they were within the list of people who had tested positive in the last, I don't know how many days, they would face fines. So this is, this is extreme. Like, this is also a complete oddity, A, having like um, uh, a coercive branch of government uh, regulate who gets to vote and who doesn't and showing up at polling stations is already highly controversial. But also the fact that the Chilean state would have this kind of infrastructure to concentrate information um, is, is, is it, in my eyes, uh, uh, like a remnant of their authoritarian, their very long and brutal dictatorship. Like, um, mm -hmm. I don't imagine other countries would have, would allow even this sort of concentration of information and much less kind of put in the hands of, of police or, or military. So this was a really odd part of the odd part of the plebiscite, not very spoken about. So, so. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do we, do we have any more elections we want to talk about before we get to the main? Um, <laughs> talk about some of the um, electoral reform initiatives that happened in the U.S. over the. Um, so, um, so um, the United States as well is having numerous other forms of election on <laughs> on the first Tuesday um, in uh, first Tuesday in November. Elects basically everything it possibly can <laughs> on those days. So and, I have direct experience of this um, this year because I see my. Uh, girlfriend is a US citizen and received her um, postal ballot um, a while back and she's registered to vote um, in San Bernardino County in California. Oh god. And, <laughs> and, um, I see I have only ever voted in the UK and um, this this ballot um, kind of blew my mind. First of all the fact that you're not crossing anything you're filling in little ovals. Yes so that they can be machine read. Yes, the sheer, mm. the sheer length of this thing, which she received in PDF format, but which went on for about about 12 pages. Mm. Um, and yeah, well, when you get down to the, the local level, obviously services that would be provided at the local level in the UK, but are now disaggregated across lots of different boards, which each have their own elections to them. Um, but then this is not to mention the kind of long series of referenda um, which are um, also California has a particularly aggressive direct democracy system that it sometimes gets compared to Switzerland uh, <laughs> because of the number of referendums they have. <laughs> only the, the number of referendums that we um, she had to find um, a kind of voter 
guide that somebody of her political inclinations had written to allow her to vote on these, but also that all local offices in California are nonpartisan um, by law. So in the local elections, I mean, so San Bernardino, this is not like a small English town. This is a, an air, a subunit which consists of millions of people. And all of these candidates don't have any party labels on it on them um, for quite a number of offices. Um, and this is when you start to, yeah, really like understand the function of political parties. I, what, what struck me is, the, yeah, I mean, this is how, yeah. how educating themselves about every single person standing, you kind of are guided to where to cast your vote um, in these, these elections. Yeah. And and yeah, I often find that Californian referendums aren't very well described on the ballot either. So you essentially have to either sit down and Google what it is, what every single referendum is, or you have to um, just make a guess based on the question. <laughs> um, it, was, it provided you on the ballot with a small paragraph detailing the um, fiscal um, repercussions if the measure was to be passed as well yeah right? under each question which yeah. is I think that, yeah Calif california was for a long time the worst governed state in the u.s um by a lot of reputations and their their their, their state debt was rated at f mm -hmm. <laughs> um, by the international rating bodies um essentially because the californian constitution made it so that um, because of the number of because a lot of these referendums are constitutionally binding mm -hmm. and therefore cannot be changed except by another referendum um, you have huge amounts of spending that is mandated by the Californian constitution and then also on top of that huge amounts of tax rates which are set by the Californian constitution and even on top of that there was also a rule that said that you needed to get two-thirds supermajority in in the Californian congress to to raise taxes <laughs> on anything else that was left <laughs> so it basically became impossible to change the fiscal situation uh, for, uh, and and but it has really turned itself around in the last few years. And I, one of the ironies is Governor Schwarzenegger. Governor Schwarzenegger essentially started out um, going, oh, I'm just going to be a kind of run-of-the-mill Republican politician. And as things went on, he kind of slowly worked out that Californian democracy was completely broken. <laughs> and so he ended up as this kind of, funnily enough, this also coincided with his... Um, with his approval ratings going down. But as time went on, he started becoming a kind of reforming centrist um, Californian governor who was just like supporting referendums all over the place to just try and sort out governance and make it function properly. And and then you had and then you've now had now we're basically now in the third term of quite successful democratic governance of California. <laughs> um, so so thanks, Governor Terminator. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's ridiculous, but um, it, it it is a hell of a lot better than it was. But there's there's still a lot broken, but. Yeah, it's, it's a lot better than it was.
I don't know whether you know anything about this, Chris, but I just remember reading, um, it might have been while we were UCL, a Leipart article where he talks about being consulted uh, on some proposal going through the California legislature to turn it into a parliamentary system at some point in the... I, I don't think I remember hearing about that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Anywhere, but that this was the, yeah, the proposal. Yeah, and there's all sorts of proposals that sometimes break out. Like, I ended up reading a, a very interesting report some years ago, a, a couple of years back, which was essentially advocating splitting California into five states. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the nations of California. <laughs> Which was very good and very well argued, and, and but also I mean, both from a governance perspective, and obviously there's a kind of logic of if you break California into five states, you go from having two senators to having ten, <laughs> which obviously has certain advantages to the Democratic Party um, with the way that the U.S. Senate works. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is a, there's a certain level of partisan self-interest although the the application i mean that's the whole reason there's two dakotas yeah (laughs) or you know and and also like one of my favorites um the mormons wanted to create a state called deseret that was going to be like a mormon super state (laughs) i i that like covered like a big portion of arizona and obviously utah and nevada and you know, all those other places that there's lots of Mormons in, and the Democrats basically looked at it and went, uh, and, and obviously this is a long time ago and things have changed, but they looked at it and went, we reckon we could probably get more senators if we just break this up. And also we don't like Mormons anyway. So, <laughs> so they just split it all up. Um, but yeah, yeah, there is a, but a certain amount of gerrymandering and just how states are split up and designed. Well, we're probably going to talk about the politics of adding more states. Um, what was Puerto Rico, anyway? Yes. Um, yeah. 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 And so, yeah. And so, on top of all that stuff, there's also a bunch of referendums happening in other states too. Um, the, the kind of ones that basically caught my attention most of all because they were um, to do with the electoral system was essentially changing the ones around the uh, changing the system to the alternative vote or as americans call it instant runoff voting um so essentially ranked choice um voting system where you need to get 50 percent of the vote you yeah um, you if no one gets 50 percent the first round you knock out the person at the bottom um, and redistribute their second preferences into, and you keep doing that until someone gets 50% of the vote or, or everyone's been knocked out. Um, so Maine essentially introduced this system um, a, a, a few years back, and they introduced that system because of, basically because of the specific politics of Maine. Maine is a state which has a kind of long-running series of very successful third-party campaigns. Um, and particularly independent campaigns. Um, And um, they had a governor in the 1990s who's now actually a senator who in both those roles um, was an independent um, um, called Angus, Angus something. (laughs) I don't know, take that center. Angus King, that's right. Um, so yeah, um, so they had a successful governor 
in the 1990s, who's now also a senator who um, was and is an independent uh, by the name of Angus King. Um, he's essentially centre-left and actually caucuses with the, the Democrats of the Senate, so effectively he acts like a Democrat. But he's officially an independent, and there, there were Democrats running against him too. Um, so, uh, uh, um, and as well as that, you've had other successful independent campaigns. This particularly kicked off a few years ago because um, they had a governor race in which um, they had two semi-decent independent performances, but which the split in the vote led to the election of a governor called LePage, who has actually himself described himself as Trump before Trump um, on 36.5% of the vote, um, which obviously created a lot of controversy. <laughs> um, and so this kind of created a lot of um, discussion around the electoral system. And so they ended up having a, actually a series of referendums um, around changing the system to the alternative vote, um, um, which um, has, uh, which now applies to every single election in Maine, including actually presidential elections. So that the electoral college votes are actually, and because Maine splits out as electoral college votes in a weird way, that the presidential election in Maine is actually now three different alternative votes <laughs> counts that happen at the same time. Um, because the um, electoral college votes for the districts are counted differently to the uh, to the one for the state, and this has also had had actual um, electoral repercussions already. So in 2018, um, in Maine's second district, which is the more so basically Maine is one of those states that has like one big city, and then like a lot of rural nothingness. And the rural nothingness is a lot more conservative than the one big city, although um, area, even though it's still broadly a blue state. Um, so Maine, Maine's second district, which covers the kind of more rural part of the state and covers therefore the vast majority of the land, but is um, much less populated. Um, it, um, actually ended up with a situation where the Republican candidate actually won the most votes in the first round, but the Democrat won because of the redistribution of third party votes. Um, so this has had genuine, like, genuine impacts already that have been significant at a federal level as well as at a, a, um, at a state level. Um, so obviously the Republicans don't like this very much and they have repeatedly tried to have it struck down by the main supreme court and they and this year they held another referendum on trying to repeal it which went down um by um quite a sizable margin um so it looks like alternative vote in maine is there to stay um albeit no, Republicans can still get elected in Maine. They've just re-elected their Republican senator, so it's not like it's not like it's going to squeeze the Republicans out permanently. And actually, Maine is, in terms of the average age, Maine is the oldest state in the union. 
say like there's good reasons to think that Maine might become more Trumpy with time as it kind of already has begun to. Um, Trump picked up for the second district and the electoral college vote again. Um, obviously, obviously Portland is probably going to remain quite democratic, but um, it might become a kind of state that in a very good Republican year might go Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, and, you know, it's also very white. So, and, you know, that rural part of it isn't very highly educated either. And actually it looks a lot like kind of rural Wisconsin or like areas like that in terms of there's a lot of kind of declining industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, Maine is like one of those states that I always have kind of a little bit of an eye on of like what you're going to do in the future. Um, and then there was also a referendum on introducing um, alternative vote in Massachusetts um, for you know the reason that Massachusetts is very liberal and highly educated. I mean, it's a state that's got both Harvard and MIT in it. <laughs> I mean, um, it, um, it, it, and so there was a referendum on that. That went, that went down. Uh, um, it got voted against by about 10 points, if I remember correctly. Um, that doesn't surprise me that much because although Massachusetts is a highly educated state, it's not a state that has a history of kind of successful third party runs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and, and they do actually occasionally elect Republicans, but they always just elect Republicans in straight fights. So, for example, the current governor of Massachusetts is now actually a Republican, albeit he's a very, very, very centrist Republican. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, and and there was also a referendum on introducing a more limited version of AV in which you can only preference your top four candidates. Um, um, in Alaska, and Alaska did actually vote to introduce AV, which similarly, once again, makes sense to me because Alaska has a, a long history of quite successful third-party campaigns. So the governor before last was actually an independent, essentially running um, in coalition with Democrats, with a kind of Democratic lieutenant governor. Um, so um, who was actually backed by Sarah Palin because um, she wanted to um, bring back some taxes that she'd introduced that the Republicans had repealed. So that was, a, that was quite, a, quite a bizarre election. But, <laughs> um, but it kind of shows Alaska's got kind of a rugged individualist kind of perspective. Actually, my favourite election ads of this, entire, um, of this entire election cycle were actually by an Alaskan independent candidate who was once again being backed by the Democrats called Dr. Al Gross. And the, the, the senator up this year is kind of controversial in Alaska because he's actually from Ohio and has kind of carpet bagged his way into a Senate seat. <laughs> um, so he, 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 ran, he ran ads essentially about how he was actually from Alaska. And he's got this great ad um, called Alaska Story, which I highly recommend you look up on YouTube, which starts with, he was born in the wake of an avalanche. <laughs> and then it carries on to like, um, to he, he killed a bear in self-defense when it tried to sneak up on him. <laughs> 
it's like it's just pictures of him like on a commercial fishing boat, but he, like he's also like a pediatrician. It's like, it's like, it's like I love this guy. I wanted to win, but oh, unfortunately, Alaska's just a little too Republican. Um, it just wasn't in the mood this year, so he didn't quite make it. So he he actually lost by quite a lot, but um, in part because he, I think, in part I think he lost because he was Democrat on the ballot. Um, even though after a kind of series of court cases where he wanted to be listed as an independent, um, but for complex reasons to do with the way to do with the way that they ended up with the Democrats backing him, um, he was listed as a Democrat. Um, so I think that worked against him, and I uh, and I suspect I'm kind of interested to see if the introduction of a kind of runoff system actually makes it easier for candidates like him in the future, mm-hmm. because they can run as independents with, with with Democrats also on uh, Democrats also in the running with kind of much less fear of uh, mm-hmm. of splitting the vote. So that might be a, and and given Alaska's kind of, for very obvious reasons, starkly kind of um, independent kind of outlook, like that might actually be an interesting, and, and there's actually a lot of independence in the Alaskan State House, um, which once again are often backed by Democrats, because the Democrats are like, we can't win in Alaska. But like we can find someone who's kind of broadly, we can we can back a kind of broadly centrist um, independent who loves guns because it's Alaska, <laughs> and they can win, and that'll be fine <laughs> because at least they're not a Republican. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, that that kind of makes sense. And then the final electoral form referendum that I was paying some attention to was in Florida. Florida was looking at introducing what they call the jungle primary system, which is a completely absurd. It's kind of an American take on two round systems mm-hmm. where instead of having a kind of primary within the parties um, where you choose candidates for one for both the main two parties and then you kind of have a kind of relatively normal general election the primary instead becomes a fight out between all the candidates um to choose a, a top two and then the top two go through to a, a, to the general election regardless of what their regardless of what their political affiliation is so they use this in California and they use it in Louisiana um, and it can result in some quite crazy results. Most notoriously in Louisiana um, in the 1990s, it actually resulted in a general election between a fairly standard fair Republican and David Duke, the former head of the KKK, <laughs> um, which then resulted in a massive black vote turning out for the kind of standard Republican for quite understandable reasons. Um, uh, and yeah, they, and, but yeah, David Duke won a scary number of votes. Um, and similarly, in 2018, California had a fight between two Democrats for its Senate seat, 
um, because Diane Feinstein had become quite controversial on the left because Diane Feinstein is one of the longest running senators in the US and um, um, because of that she was elected at a time where California was a lot more conservative than it is now and she's kind of retained those values so a lot of people basically think that she's like a centrist sellout so there was a kind of more progressive democratic candidate who ran against her um, and who who, who who actually then ended up winning a lot of Republican votes because he wasn't the incumbent Democrat. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, that's it. Can have some odd results, um, and but the the idea is it's supposed to make it's supposed to make um, candidates more centrist because the idea being that. Um, the idea being that if you end up with like an, a Republican and a more extreme Republican, the Democrats will vote for the other and vice versa. And uh, but it can also result in situations where people where you end up with kind of two extremes for both parties because they're trying to kind of double down on the base <laughs> um, in both cases. Um, so that can be a problem. So that can, yeah, cause some. Yeah, I, I, I don't like jungle primaries, but <laughs> uh, as you might have figured out. Um, but I, 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 and so I was quite happy that Florida voted them down because I don't need Florida to become even more of a headache for me <laughs> in, in future elections. <laughs> Anyway, that's my electoral form referendums around the US. And then, of course, there's been another um, really big sub-state election in a different part of the world um, this month. Um, and these, this is the elections um, in the Indian state of Bihar, um, where all seats in the um, state legislative assembly were up for election, um, which also decided control of the of the state government. Which is a huge state. I think it's probably the largest the largest population by far of anything we've talked about. Yeah, every European state apart from Russia, essentially, in terms of populations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unit. Um, yeah, and then yeah. Yeah, the, the kind of coalition supporting, um, that supports Modi at the national level, um, re was incumbent, run re-election, which was, I think, was moderately unexpected. That there was some, some oh, really? what, what was it? Was it actually the BJP that won, or was it like an allied party with the BJP bringing up the? So there was um, BJP and then a regional party in coalition, but they are of roughly equal strength, the two. Um, yeah. the, and then they faced um, a coalition of um, the INC and a regional co and regional party. Um, yes, that, that's quite that's quite classic. Yeah. One one of the things with. One of the things with India has ended up with essentially a series of two-party systems in every state that are all completely different. And at a national level, they end up with like ten-party governments in a first-past-the-post system <laughs> because that's what's going to happen when you have uh, have a federation with a population of what one point three billion now is it? <laughs> It's like 800 million voters on the voter rolls. Like <laughs> uh, uh, uh. And, and, and within that incredibly 
ethnically, culturally, um, linguistically, uh, and religiously diverse as well. So, to some extent, not so surprising that it's ended up the way it has. Yeah, we should probably also talk about the elections that took place in Bolivia last month, and because that was quite an interesting result and kind of an interesting um, backstory to how we got to these uh, these elections. Um, obviously, we were held elections in Bolivia in 2019 as well, um, but the results of those were uh, cancelled and a rerun of the vote was scheduled. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to talk, tell us a little bit about that, Andres, because I know this is an, um, an area you've been looking into, and if you could... Yeah, maybe start by telling us a bit about what happened on the night of the last election. The electronic counting system had big failures, and so it shut down. And that was deemed highly suspicious. But then the, the, the OAS, the Organization of American States, in a really, really controversial um, report, actually issued a, they issued a report very I think two, two or three days after the election, saying that there were there was evidence of fraud and that the election should be repeated, and it's it's highly unusual. I'd say it's basically unprecedented, but I don't want to say unprecedented because a that's a horrible word, word to use into 2020. Everyone's been using it, but also because I'm not sure if actually no um, electoral monitoring body has issued such a report, but in a highly unusual report, they suggested that the election should be redone. And, you know, usually elect, election monitoring reports will, like, flag uh, evidence of fraud. But it's my understanding that they don't recommend, like, the recommendations are never so forceful as to impinge on, like, a country's sovereignty. There was then a paper by several mathematicians who suggested that the pattern of voting was actually consistent with um, with the pattern of voting in Bolivia, so that there wasn't, so that the one of the main reasons why the OAS thought that there there had been fraud was actually um, not valid. They had been too quick to assume that. But anyway, mm-hmm. there was a uh, the 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 army uh, it didn't formally step in in the way that it could have or it would have uh, in, you know, during the Cold War in Latin America. But they still, you know, issued like that there needed to be calm. The president of the Senate uh, uh, became the president, was voted into president. And she was Janine, what was her name? Janine Agnes, who's from a relatively minor party. Um, And she ruled... I mean, she governed, she's not going to rule. She governed for like basically a whole, um, yeah, basically a whole year. And elections were meant to be held in early 2020. But because COVID hit, um, the sitting government, Jenny Agnes, did all she could to postpone the election in an attempt to um, kind of play the polls and see how the election could get better. And the election happened in the end. I mean, it was postponed, I think, uh, two times. And each time was like a potentially conflictual, conflicting situation or a, a situation where there could have been conflict. And then in, um, in October of 2020, it was finally held. There was like a lot of uh, COVID-19 precautions. 
and it's a two round it's a runoff system so in the first in the first round any winning candidate needs to get over 50% of the vote in order for there not to be a second round uh, a runoff round and mass Evo Morales's party the candidate was the the ministry minister of the economy Luis Arce and um not Evo Morales again so i think that that maybe probably took a lot of the pressure off of the election because it was disputed whether or not Evo Morales could be candidate a uh, president for such a long time and then uh Luis Arce won with over 50% of the vote luckily and there was an there was a really odd thing which is very close to the election the electoral uh the electoral management body had to tell citizens and electoral observers and other parties that they couldn't run an electronic voting system because they couldn't guarantee it would work it wouldn't like um backfire again and so like days before the election they went into it without a way of counting votes other than just counting them by hand and then registering them which meant that the 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 vote count took a lot longer luckily there were tv stations who polled who did exit polls and they all coincided on the fact that mas had won and janine anyes um accepted the the electoral result on the day sorry sorry for this view no no i mean that's good i mean yeah it's a really interesting uh situation in bolivia and has been for so long because the country has constantly felt like a little powder keg ready to kick off mm-hmm. but yeah it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that mass won because yeah they 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 clearly are genuinely popular and lots of what morales did was genuinely popular but i and i i kind of keep on seeing all this commentary on both sides which just seems completely over the top in terms of like i'm sure there was stuff that mass was doing and and i know that the other electoral observers that were observing it thought that there was stuff going wrong too but weren't as harsh as oex so i wouldn't be surprised if at all if there was stuff that mass was doing which was a bit off but at the same time it does seem like they were kind of genuinely the most popular party <laughs> and, um yeah and so like the stuff on both sides like i've seen basically people on both sides screaming coo <laughs> about kind of different stuff and like it's one of those situations where it's probably somewhere in the middle <laughs> and probably both of you are doing dodgy stuff but yeah yeah from 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 the point of view of like i guess latin american history um obviously coup is like i obviously people were extremely suspicious of like any sort of non electoral mechanism for even a temporary um president or temporary government having said that i mean and 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 that's true i mean the gov- the army's been traditionally like a kingmaker or at least kind of like a referee mm-hmm. for politics including in bolivia having said that in bolivia the army was much less prominent than it could have been you know in a in a sense i don't know it's it's interesting and but that also raises the question of like what people call coup today like even there's even talk of coup in in the united states now or like an attempt of a coup um 
It's yeah. like a word that's uh, losing its meaning or acquiring many uh, meanings uh, <laughs> very quickly. No, I like the and even even in the UK, like um, people screaming coup about like machinations within parties to remove leaders, which are perfectly legal <laughs> on both ends. <laughs> like, perfectly within the rules of the party, but yeah, um, yeah, I think it's just one of those things of how these words kind of evolve and change meaning. Um, and yeah, but sometimes sometimes this stuff is difficult because like there are certainly things like I mean a good example is what like Fujimori did in Peru when he like essentially just dissolved Congress. And, like he was the president, so he wasn't putting him, but he was. It was essentially a kind of coup. Yeah. <laughs> he was extra constitutional change to to kind of to strengthen his own position. Um, you yeah. thinking about the Fujimoris with the what's going on in the US now, the sort of worry that the Trumps will end up being like that family was for Peru, in that yeah. like obviously Fujimori's daughter is like yeah. and election still like Yeah. And like talking about um <laughs> and talking about um like electronic voting systems as well. I don't know if you two have noticed, but the, the latest theory going around Trump world is that the the rigging happened through electronic voting systems designed by Hugo Chavez, and therefore Hugo Chavez has rigged the election despite being dead. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I heard that news conference by um, the it was Rudy Giuliani and, and um, what's her name, Sydney Powell. Yes. Um, yeah, it's so outlandish. It's 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 fascinating. It's it's almost as if they came up with a theory. That is purposely hard to believe. I wonder what they're trying to get at. If they're <laughs> I, I, I trying think to, <laughs> I think it's one of those things of if you look at the people that Trump hires and the people that he likes hiring, particularly for his personal business, they're almost always people who just tell him what he wants to hear. Mm. So, uh, um, and and the man is ultimately more than anything else. Before the fact that he's an authoritarian, before the fact that he's very right wing, white supremacist, all, all first and foremost, he's a narcissist, <laughs> and like as a, as a lot of authoritarian leaders are, <laughs> um, and and so yeah, you ultimately you just get to a point where where uh, you end up with a legal team that made up of people who clearly aren't competent but are clearly telling him what he wants to wants to know um so and you know we're also at a point now where it's pretty blatantly obvious to everyone that there hasn't been any fraud mm. <laughs> um so you have to come up with more and more outlandish theories to explain away why there was fraud <laughs> right the, the, there, there was definitely no fraud in, in the United States, of, of course not. But it is a system that has like extremely, it's, it's, it's level of like development and democratic consolidation and history of democracy doesn't necessarily match like its, uh, its ad electoral administration standards. Hmm. Um, it's so, I mean, there's, there's I so mean many... So much of it is stuff that was established very long ago, which now, if you look at it, you basically go, this is woefully outdated and very problematic. 
Well, the fact that basically electoral administration is always run by partisan officials, and a lot of the time they're elected partisan officials as well, like the Secretary of State of Georgia being an elected Republican politician. (laughs) And, you know, thank God that it was someone who was willing to say, no, I'm just going to do my job, (laughs) Um, rather than someone who was going to, and he clearly was ambitious, like from what I've understood, he's been aiming to become he was hoping that this would be like a pathway to becoming governor in the long run um but you know he's clearly clearly um just wants to do his job within the law which thank god (laughs) um and i think it was a similar situation in arizona um so yeah um but uh, yeah and the, the other thing i kind of keep coming back to a lot is like oh, I'm, I'm very cynical of presidential systems as a mode of <laughs> of democracy, and like you know, uh, you, you guys will both know that there's lots of political science stuff that says that um, that says that uh, that says that um, presidential democracies are particularly prone to falling into authoritarianism, and like there's a there's a bit in Sartori's book Constitutional Engineering where he says that. Um, where he's discussing that kind of particular situation, why it is that presidential systems fall into democracy, uh, fall into authoritarianism. And he starts talking about the American case. And he basically says, he basically argues that the reason why American democracy hasn't fallen into authoritarianism in, in the past is because... American political culture makes it work. And now I look at current current day American political culture, I start going, oh, <laughs> if that's your argument, <laughs> we might be in trouble. <laughs> that's that's true. I mean, one looks at like, for example, um the system, I mean, how who calls who like who calls the the winner of the election in the United States is actually down to um, good behavior, like uh, an agreement. I mean, yes, there's the electoral college, but it's it's, it's going to happen in such a long time. And there are the states as well, but it's just always basically been um, uh, new. I mean, news networks and candidates who concede, right? Um, which is so different, and and that this is kind of interesting you know, from the point of view of Mexico. In Mexico, the electoral authority, the central electoral authority has a quick count a statistically represent, from a statistically representative sample on the day of the election. So within about like five hours of polls closing, there is an official statement on who is, you know, in all likelihood, the winner of the presidential race. That that discrepancy was used by the president of Mexico to withhold recognition of Donald Trump saying, you know, there's no official recognition. So why should, you know, we wouldn't want that to happen for Mexicans. So why should we do that to the United States? (laughs) And has now been like in the ignominious list of, along with like Putin, Bolsonaro, and I don't know, some other, uh, some other world leader. Who hasn't rec- who hasn't congratulated Joe Biden on winning, on being president-elect? Um, 
Yeah, that, that's quite funny, especially given what um, Amlo got up to in in two thousand six, which <laughs> I I've, I've referenced a lot to friends and like like um, when friends have asked me what does a a candidate not conceding look like, I kind of go back to the so in so for Jonathan's benefit and if we decide to put this on the podcast as well, uh, basically in two thousand six, the current president of Mexico came very close to winning the, winning the election and then claimed fraud afterwards. I don't know whether there was fraud. It's, I, I'm, I'm not enough of an expert in Mexico to judge um, either way, but he claimed there was fraud and then proceeded to claim that he was the legitimate president of Mexico and held a presidential inauguration in the middle of Mexican City. And as I understand it, blocked traffic in Mexico City for about six months with a kind of constant protest, which, given that Mexico City is one of the most congested cities in the world, I understand was not a very popular move. <laughs> That's right. All of what you've said is, is absolutely right. I mean, I worked for the for the Electoral um, Commission, not, not, at, not at the time, um, six years mm. after. And it's just... It's just totally like unlikely that there would be fraud, especially in the ways that AMLO was um, mm. purporting that there had been fraud, which is actually like um, miscounting or overcounting votes, stuff ballots. There was enormous, um, I'd say, uh, there was a lot of negative campaigning from private actors against against him, and he did receive a differentiated price for his presidential campaign commercials in TVs. And so that's not fraud. I mean, it's very different from fraud, but there was yeah. a sort of like- There was a bias. Yeah. yeah, there was not, yeah, not the most kind of steady playing field, level playing field, but he got a, I mean, and, and you know, it was massive, it was very, very disruptive for a very young Mexican democracy. But what was interesting is what's interesting is that the opposition created a huge electoral reform, and one of the things it did was it it forbade it forbids now parties from buying uh, airtime and forces TV stations. It doesn't force TV stations. TV stations have to give an hour or I don't know how many minutes. I I, I, I have to give about forty minutes of airtime to the government per day anyway. So they just turned that into the time where parties get um, TV commercials and they're allotted to them, no longer bought. So they did kind of resolve the major issue around the election through a, through a multi-party reform, which was interesting. But I mean, it could have gone in so many different directions. Um, and some people blame or some people see a connection between the electoral instability caused by his refusing to accept the election and the start of the war drugs in Mexico, the war on drugs, because the president had very little, had to come up with something as big to kind of overshadow that and basically said, we're going to start a military campaign against cartels. And that's been terrible for the country. Yeah. And it also gets at one of the other problems with how, how Mexican presidents elected the fact that you use first foster post rather than having a two round system like most people, because that would confer more legitimacy. (laughs) And, you know, there was probably an argument that if there had been a second round in 2006, AMLO might have won 
it's hard to it's hard to know for sure um, where the pre votes would have gone. But uh, uh, yeah, you're right. With you can you can win the Mexican presidency. There's so many parties and relatively kind of equal sized parties that you you know you can win the presidency with a, a little over like 34 percent of the vote. Yeah, I think um, it's not, it's not I think, a great mandate. I think the pan candidate in 2006, I've forgotten who it was. Calderon? Calderon. Calderon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Calderon. Um, I think he only got 35% of the vote, didn't he? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that's probably also part of the reason for calling forward because then it doesn't feel like a particularly deep mandate anyway. Yeah, yeah. Although now, I mean, Lopez Obrador, he, he cried fraud again in 2012, probably with less strong of a case, but also an equally kind of fragmented political system. Mm. And then in 2018, he uh, he won by a landslide. Like, um, I mean, despite the electoral rules, he, he, he was just... Um, yeah. Yeah, it was just, he won by, um, how much was it? It was like over 50% of the vote. Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. he won a first round, even if it had been a two-round. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there's a winner bonus in Mexican politics, formal and informal, because a lot of satellite parties then attach to the largest party. So he can actually, he also has a qualified majority in Congress. Yes. He can change the constitution now. Oh, can he? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can. He's 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 been shy about it, but he's changed the constitution several times. Which isn't a huge deal because in Mexico the constitution changes like every year because it's just too long. But <laughs> Yeah, lengthy constitutions uh, are always a good time. Um, I think it's I think it's Alabama, which has like a uh, which has like a four hundred page constitution and like has sections in it <laughs> on, like the regulation of chicken coops <laughs> because essentially the constitution makes it incredibly difficult to make legislation on anything. So when they make like lots of stuff that should be ordinary legislation, they have to change the constitution. <laughs> Okay, we are going to leave it there for this episode. Next time, we will resume our coverage of the November elections with an in-depth look at the Puerto Rican general election, the Moldovan presidential election, and the Georgian parliamentary election. For Georgia, we are going to be joined by Ido Vok, international correspondent for the New Statesman, to discuss the results, key players, and aftermath. So I look out for that. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at, at @ballotworld, And please do rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.